Without further ado, we have Professor Riza Brooks from Marquette University. Uh, she got her PhD at UCSD. She pre and post docced at the Olin Center and at CSAC at Stanford. Uh, she wrote a book on civil military politics of strategic assessment from Princeton Press and is the author of numerous articles. Um, she's well esteemed and we look forward to her great uh, talk. So without further ado, a warm Notre Dame welcome. Thank you, everyone, and thank you for having me. I always love to be here. It's always a great time to see terrific colleagues and to see all the students out. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about a project I've been working on for some time on terrorist safe havens. You've probably figured that out. Um, I sent around a chapter that's going into an anthology um, to give you sort of a general sense of some of the pieces of that project. What I'm going to present today is a bit more developed um, and focuses on a bit more of Europe than the paper that you actually saw. Um, one thing I'll just comment on, and since there's so many students here, maybe this is helpful to reflect upon. This is a project I've been working on in various forms for a couple of years. Um, and in particular, some of the empirical part of analyzing some of the plots it just takes forever. It's very time consuming. But I've also revised it analytically at different times. And sort of it's, it, I think it's helpful to reflect that it's a natural part of writing a paper that there are moments when you think you need to put it away and take it back out. And as you're working on your own projects, that that's not something that's a foreign part of it. It's just a natural piece. And so I thought I would share that observation or that thought. Um, so why, also I wanted to share with you why I'm interested in safe havens and where that came from. Um, my husband might say it's because of my contrarian nature, but um, I wouldn't say that. I would say that <laughs> it is um, in part because um, there is such a conventional wisdom that, especially since 9-11, that terrorist safe havens are extremely dangerous and the U.S. must rapidly mobilize, undertake military action to prevent any militant organization from um, obtaining one. Um, and I think that that sort of conventional wisdom um, sort of attracted me to try to challenge that. And especially from the sense, or to sort of think more about it. Um, and I think especially from the position of being a professor and having the privilege of having tenure, which allows me to ask questions and make challenges that, uh, and not lose my job for doing that. And there's not a lot of positions in life and society that you get to do that. And with that comes some ethical um, obligation to try to ask those questions and to challenge things. So that's a bit of sort of where this comes from. Um, also, it's, it's very interesting analytically and empirically. I hope I'll be able to convince you of that. So here are the two general broad questions of the project. Pretty, oh, this, okay. This thing is very sensitive. Um, oh yeah, okay, I've got my, it's gonna take me a minute. I might look behind me a few times. Um, so basically, what are the impacts of terrorist safe havens on a militant organization's capacity to plot attacks, especially thinking and orienting this project toward Al-Qaeda and ISIS type um, threats, um, challenges with their sanctuaries in the Middle East in relation to Europe and the United States. And that also comes from a policy perspective, although there are broader lessons for other groups and other types of um, challenges that they might pose. Okay, so. Um, there are two prevailing views. You probably have already heard, got a sense of what one of them is. 
um, and that is the policy consensus. After 9-11, with the 9-11 Commission report, which st stated quite boldly that terrorist safe havens had to be eliminated, and that was the only way to protect the United States, that has set off a more than, I don't know, 17 years of justifications and rationales for all sorts of military activity in the Middle East based on eliminating safe havens. It was a rationale, obviously, for the war in Afghanistan, but also George W. Bush's war in Iraq. Um, also, uh, President Obama, as recently as 2016, justifies his um, effort to leave, his decision to leave troops um, in Afghanistan on the grounds that he doesn't want um, them to be able to uh, regroup and attack the United States, that he won't permit that. So it's a bipartisan sort of fixation, um, to use that language, on these things. It's also a central concern in Washington. And when I talked about challenging conventional views, there's a lot of, there's quite an infrastructure and a lot of, uh, this is cynical, but a lot of money to be made on uh, the backs of the terrorist threat. Um, and here's an example of that, um, that sort of effort. This is Bruce Hoffman, who is considered sort of one of the most foremost thinkers on terrorism in the DC circles. Um, talking about just a year and a half ago how we need to, you know, the terrorism threat from Al-Qaeda ISIS is as serious as it's ever been. We're going to have another 9-11, Wall Street Journal, not a small publication. We've also seen a uh, sort of reviving of these themes most recently with Donald Trump's discussion of withdrawing forces from Syria and from Afghanistan. Um, it is a bit more oblique, which I think is interesting, and I've thought about why that is. I have some ideas. Um, but you still see it there. So Dan Coates, Director of National Intelligence, tacking on the end of his testimony. He was just talking about general intelligence problems or threats facing the United States, that we needed to be worried about terrorists um, attacking in the Middle East, but also including the United States in the United States. Afghanistan affiliate of ISIS is dangerous, the most dangerous, could attack the United States. And then last, we see a reappearance of Bruce Hoffman, once again, reminding us that we are being complacent if we don't worry about the terrorist threat. Sorry, you do hear the cynicism in my voice, probably. OK, um, so there is a contrary view. It's not a very common view, but it's out there circulating. And it is quite the opposite. And that is that haven, terrorist safe havens are completely unnecessary for any kind of terrorist attack, including a complex one like 9-11. Um, they don't need havens. They can do everything they need to do inside a rented apartment building in any given city. And some of this comes from some of the activities in Hamburg of the 9-11 hijackers and some of the things they did there. So here's my argument. I'm going to tell you that it's, they're both wrong, and that's actually good news, because terrorism is harder than either of them would have you think it is. It's harder. It takes more than having an apartment, an apartment in the city, and it takes more than having a uh, territorial safe haven. Um, that in carrying out, executing, especially successfully, a complex attack, and I'm going to define exactly what I mean by that in a minute, um, is a lot harder than either of these views would suggest and actually requires three different things. It requires a physical space, this is the haven, where there's some freedom of movement for a military organization to develop some bit of hierarchy 
um, and to uh, some organizational structure, some organizational capacity to vet and train operatives in the, ta in the tactics and the techniques and weapons um, required for any kind of complex plot. It requires, um, many people argue, and I'm building somewhat off the literature here, um, it, it enables the formation of cohesive cells, builds unit cohesion, has a lot of effects that allowing a group having to have territory enables um, to build human capital among operatives. Okay, that's the classic safe haven argument. Um, it requires two other things. Those trained and experienced operatives have to have access. They have to be able to get into the area where those attacks are going to take place. And I'm going to explain more about why that's important and what that, why that isn't so, uh, such an obvious thing as it may seem at the moment. They also need local security. And by, by this I mean they need, in proximity to the target where they're planning and preparing and doing essential pre-operational steps, they need to be able to undertake those steps and also to commit errors um, in operational security without becoming exposed. Okay, so those are the basic pieces. And I'm going to go through and work through some of these bits. Okay, first let me explain to you what I mean by complex plots. So in recent years, most people have been really concerned with, focused on things like lone wolves. And they use that as a metaphor for a really simple type of attack. So they're not necessarily solitary individuals, but they do things like run people over in vehicles um, or use knives to attack them. Things that require no premeditation, no um, planning, and no skill. I am not interested in those types of plots mainly because I don't think safe haven should have much effect on those. Um, empirically, I'm finding that that might not be quite the case, but I can go back to that. So I'm interested here in looking at plots that actually require some, either a group or a network, because those are much harder to secure and prevent exposure. They have, in particular, one of the big patterns that you see is the ability to um, use weapons that are not readily available. So in the United States, that would include things like um, ammonium nitrate fertilizer bombs. Um, the DHS tracks ammonium, uh, ammonium nitrate fertilizer now. This is the bomb. This is the material that's not very difficult to make bombs with if you get a large amount. It's what Timothy McVeigh used, for example. Um, or TATP acetone-based bombs, which are very, very difficult to create, um, but, of, but you can use readily available materials. So things like that, it, um, in, in Europe, if you're using assault rifles, where it's much more difficult to get those, um, that's also something that would sort of count as an aspect of complexity. So it's those sorts of plots that I'm talking about as I go through my argument here. Okay. So I'm going to sort of give you, to sort of work through the pieces, I want to start with a, a basic heuristic, which is a simple attack cycle. Um, my formatting is a little screwed up. I see that. Sorry about that. Um, and basically, the, the, con the idea here is that when people are talking about terrorist attacks, they're usually conceiving them, of them as a sort of singular phenomenon, a singular thing. And in fact, they're not. They involve a series of steps, different type of capabilities that have different components. And so my argument is that in order to understand how you build capability across these different elements, you need different things for them. It's not just one thing that you're doing when you're attacking. And so 
Sometimes you need tr a lot of skills and training. Sometimes you just need a lot of local security, and I'm going to go through that. And so anyway, the sort of upshot is that thinking about what goes into a plot is how you work backward from, from understanding how you actually get them, if that makes sense. Okay, so the first prerequisite. Um, this sort of reiterates what I just said a few minutes ago, um, that the first thing that you need if you're going to undertake a complicated plot of any any sophistication is you need some um, opportunity for your operatives to get some tactical technical skills. These are things like the ability to fabricate weapons, build TATP bombs, which are very difficult, or um, even basic bombs, um, although I don't really focus much on those, can be very challenging for some actors, fortunately. Um, also things like terrorist tradecraft, this is surveillance, this is how you obscure your behavior, um, a whole bunch of sort of uh, different things that these actors will do to make sure that law enforcement doesn't see what they're doing or have people observe them and report them. So there's some kind of training piece. The second prerequisite is positioning militants in proximity to the target. And this is where I'm starting to get at the concept of access. So you're a militant group. You're in, uh, sitting in Syria, because a lot of the recent plots, especially in Europe, have involved people that have been in Syria, some in Libya. Um, they, and you've, you know, you've found some recruits, you've trained them, you've vetted them, you've given them a short course in how to handle a weapon, et cetera. OK, what are you going to do? You need to get these people into um, the area where you want to actually attack a target, Europe, or the United States. Um, there's two ways you can do that. Well, first you can decide you're just going to bypass that and not use those people that you've just trained. Just try to use locals. And so what you do is you get on Telegram, which is the favored ISIS messaging app, things you learn while doing this work, um, and you, you know, try to identify some people, inspire them, send them lots of messages. You try to direct them, remote control them. That's a very that's a sort of argument that's circulating. I will return to that later. Um, and you just, you know, skip using these operatives. Well, the empirical evidence suggests that using locals is not very useful because mostly they're not very good at being terrorists. And they're and sort of lots of people who've studied different plots have plots have found that they fail. Um, they either expose themselves to authorities or they can't build a bomb or whatever. So that's not a great solution. Second, you infiltrate. That's sort of the 9/11 model. You take people who are ruthless hijackers and you. They're not from the area. They're not from the United States. In the 9-11 case, mostly Saudis. And you find your, you, you send them in. Um, second, or last, actually third, you recruit people who are local to the area where you want to attack, get them to come to your haven, train them up, send them back. Notice that the last two, the better solutions in terms of actually building capability, are things that require you to get people get in and out of the area where you're going to engage in tax. The problem is that there are either geographic or political obstacles to doing that, right? Namely borders, is in the cases that we're talking about, right? You have to have a way of getting and bypassing those border controls or getting those people in without exposing them. That seems easy, that's quite difficult. And so Essentially, what I'm arguing is it's only when groups have the ability to really do that, for some reasons I'll explain, that you're going to see the types of attacks that are really terrifying and scary. Okay. 
Um, go on. The third one is that you need some kind of local security. And this goes back to that attack cycle, sort of maintaining operational security, doing all of the things that you need to do, whether it's buying acetone or, um, let's see, I'll give you some recent examples. So in 2016, there's a plot um, in Germany in which um, the perpetrator decides that he needs to get, um, he's been on Telegram, and he's got this manual he's downloaded of how to build ricin. And so he figures out he wants to do this. And so what does he do? He has to get castor beans to do this. And he has to get a coffee grinder. And so you know, you think, OK, operational security. He's hiding. He's not telling anybody what he does. But what does he do? Where does he order these things from? Where do you think? Where do we mostly order things like that from? No joke. Yes, Amazon, right? <laughs> yes. So the British tell the Germans. Because actually, the British and the US actually tell the Europeans quite a lot. It's quite interesting to see how, how that intelligence coordination goes. Um, they, tell the, they, they should have been telling the Belgians a lot more, but I'll get to that part of my story. OK, so anyway, there's, there's a variety of different things empirically that these groups do that lead to their exposure. And so if you have a forgiving environment, if you have people that'll look the other way when they smell those odors coming out of your window when you're brewing up stuff, if they have people that know who you're hanging out with and that you might, you've been doing different things and they don't report you, it helps you. It keeps you from getting exposed. And that's one of the sort of pieces of local security. Also, if the intelligence apparatus is failing in its job and isn't picking up obvious clues. That's also a source of local security. And again, I'll go back to that, building all these pieces on top of each other. I'm going to skip that for right now. OK, so I just mentioned this idea of local security. Intuitively, it's pretty clear. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about what, what that means or what's involved or how a group uh, achieves or attains that security. And I see it as coming from an interaction between um, what the state is doing or not doing and what's happening in a local uh, environment in a geographic space. Uh, um, usually when we're talking about local security, these networks or individuals plotting, especially in Europe, are associated with a physical neighborhood or town. They're, they have a place where they go and they meet and they work through things and they coordinate. So what's going on there? Can you see this at all? I don't know. I can barely see it from there, but maybe you can see it here. And I'm not going to develop all of this, but I want to give you a sense of what I think is determining local, local security, the causes. And so there's this term called radical mu. I haven't really thought of a better term, so I'm just borrowing that from the terrorism studies uh, folks and using that and sort of trying to get a sort of broad conceptualization of the relationship between these things. So if you think of effectiveness in intelligence and counterterrorism, we, uh, we can talk about what that might involve on one axis and on the other, um, sort of the willingness to look the other way to militants operating in your midst on the other, if not outright help them. Um, you get sort of four different settings. On the one hand, you get a setting that's really inhospitable to any kind of terrorist plotting when the state is very mobilized and is very uh, effective, sort of connecting its dots, and the local environment is very unreceptive to hiding you and will reveal you via tips and things like that, which happens quite frequently in some places. Um, you can think of 
a place where law enforcement is really failing or intelligence is really failing, like in pre-9-11 United States. And it's not a hospital in, hospitable environment in terms of how society is receiving militants, although they're not sort of as alerted to some of the things people in the community as they might be. In fact, several of them report them to report some of the activities of the 9-11 hijackers to law enforcement, but there's real intelligence failures. And if anybody hasn't, if you don't know this and haven't read this, 9-11, you know, there are very strong arguments that that really should have never happened, much like the Paris and Brussels attacks that I'll tell you about in a minute. Okay, so um, hospital setting, and this is, you'll notice down here I have this neighborhood, Molenbeek, in, in Brussels. This is the area where the Paris um, French network that perpetrated those attacks operated out of. Law enforcement in Belgium is a total nightmare. I mean, the stuff that they do, the things that they miss, um, as again, go through, um, is just really egregious. And so that might be a hospital setting. So it's generally, when I'm thinking about local security, this is just a tool to have you start to think about what does that involve and how do groups get that? Where does it come from? Okay. So here's the core hypothesis that's driving my whole argument. Um, that, let's see, what did I write down there? Um, that basically, that when you, you don't get complex plots, any plot of any sophistication in Europe or the United States, unless one or more of the militants involved in that plot have had training or fought in the safe haven. Usually this is Syria that we're talking about in recent years. Um, it's also that they also have um, an environment where there is local security either from the uh, effects of some of the stuff the state is doing or because of societal dynamics. And I've done a number of different things that I'm working on in this project. The first one is the, is the thing that's just about killing me. I have an RA helping me, but I uh, end up having to do a lot of it myself, which is to go through every single plot in Europe that's happened since 2001 that's involved anybody inspired or, or building off of the ideology of Al-Qaeda or ISIS. I don't use the term jihadi. That's the, the prominent term. I have reasons for that. But that's sort of the language when people are talking about jihadi terrorism. That is what they mean. And so those plots, um, and I'm examining them to look at sort of what are the fundamental elements. And I'll tell you about the, sort of where I am in that. I've also done a couple of qualitative case studies, um, one of 9-11, and that's to debunk a counter-argument. I'll briefly mention that. And then next, which is the case study on the Belgian-French network and the Paris-Brussels attacks. And I want to spend quite a bit of time on that, so I'm going to talk about that next. And basically, the goal of the case studies is to figure out, in a process kind of way, what's really going on here. Is this really about a territorial safe haven, or is there a lot more to this story? And what you find is there's a lot more to this story. And that has important implications, because that means that you can prevent those attacks without having to worry too much about that safe haven. There are other things causing it, and there are other solutions to it. OK. so. Just to remind you, probably a lot of you remember this. Unlike 9-11, which is history, has, has anybody noticed that, how it's history? It's, it's very strange. Anyway, so um, 2015, November, uh, horrific attack, multiple targets in Paris, 
the stadium, outside the stadium. The militants don't go into there, but in front of, they blow up bombs. There are nine different operatives. There are people helping them, moving them around, driving them around. Um, and 130 people die. Several months later, there's another attack in Brussels in the airport. Some of you may recall that grainy footage of the guys with the suitcases. They also, um, an, a third person involved in that goes to a, a local station, train station in Brussels, um, and uh, kills 32 people, injuring many more than that. What many people don't realize is that the reason that people talk about Brussels and Paris together is it's the same network of people. The same bomber builds the bomb for both. He kills himself in the second plot, in the second attack. It's not only that, the Belgian-French network um, is also responsible by a, for a whole series of attacks. And what you really get at when you start to look at some of the most serious things that happened in Europe is if somebody had caught these guys and there were real opportunities, a lot of the terrorism that we saw in Europe would not be there. Because it's really, a, a lot of it is connected, especially the most serious stuff, to this one network. Okay, so there I want to just review for you a couple of the characters I'm going to talk about. One of them is Aboud. He's the sort of the central, really smart, savvy guy um, in the sense of that doesn't mean I agree with what he's using that for, but he is. He's quite capable. He's a liaison between the external operations branch that's in Syria, in Aleppo. Um, he's been doing this since 2013, and he um, helps recruit, greet, direct um, the militants that are in Molenbeek, that neighborhood in Belgium principally, living or in France. They all sort of circle in and out. There are a couple of other key people, Abdel Salam. He's the one guy that doesn't get caught in Paris and is caught much later after he's been, he's caught in Brussels. After he's been there uh, four months in a neighbor, like in a house, like a little ways down from his original, uh, from his apartment where he grew up or where he'd been living most recently. Um, and then Abrini. So those are the three people I'm going to talk about. Okay. So the first piece of the story is how important was local security to the Paris-Brussels attack and the capacity of this Belgian-French network to carry it out? And I, I've got a couple of sort of the more colorful, some might say slightly inflammatory, quotations from New York Times and Al Jazeera you know, the Islamic State of Molenbeek, ISIL in Brussels. Um, basically, there's a neighborhood um, that the Belgians have not, for whatever complex social structural reasons that I don't fully understand and won't pretend to, um, has had a very difficult relationship with law enforcement and is not interested, many of the inhabitants there, not much interested in cooperating with them. Um, Within that sort of language, you'll see some of the quotes that I've pulled. These are from a ProPublica, um, incredible piece of investigative journalism. Boy, after I read this, I actually went and got on the website and gave them some money. I was just blown away. It was so amazing, the work that they did in uncovering this. Some of this is from that and from some other newspapers. I have, if, any, if you're interested in sources or anything, I can tell you after. PowerPoint doesn't really allow all that to be plugged in on the slide. Okay, so... You're getting a sense. There's this, there's this neighborhood. Um, many of these guys live there, or they circle in and out. Earlier plots have also 
had contacts here, even independent of the 2015 Belgium-French network, um, the, the 2004 bombings of the trains in Barcelona, those guys got stuff from Molenbeek, the um, Charlie Hebdo, um, those people also got stuff from Molenbeek, weapons, et cetera, and connections. Okay, second piece. So part of the story is social structural dynamics in this neighborhood and what's going on there. The second piece is the Belgians completely, and I apologize if someone has some ties to there, complete ineptitude when it comes to acting like police, because they don't. I'm, and part, okay, so part of this might is cultural, and those are important things, and those are things that we make decisions of, but part of this is just incompetence. One of the things is they have a million people in Brussels, they have six different police apparatus. They do not talk to each other. They have many rules and constraints on how they operate, but they're just really not good at police work. And some of the, the key things, I can't see my slides exactly what I, what, oh, peek behind me. Um, I want to talk about some of this. This is a busy slide, so let me just pull out a couple of things for you to start to understand how this contributed and provided the local security to this network. So Abud, I mentioned to you he's that savvy guy, the coordinator that goes back and forth, the liaison kind of coordinator, manager type. Um, so in, in January 2015 in Verver, there's a, a, a plot that's uncovered. It is extremely serious. The Belgians have figured this out. I don't know. I haven't figured out exactly how they got wind of it. But they monitor it for two months. When they finally go in and raid it, they find masses of equipment. There is a firefight with the police. That's so, it's like the biggest firefight the Belgians have had since World War II. Um, people die. It's, it's, which may not be saying too much. But in any case, it's a, it's a big deal. Why this is so important is they know that Abud is a part of that. And they even know that he has ties to Syria. This is 10 months before Paris, before he will orchestrate that attack. That is a big, big red flag, right? So you know this. They do try to get him. He goes to Greece for a period of time. The CIA tries to help with that. Um, probably some movie could be made about that. Anyway, they don't get him. Um, he goes back to Syria. But he goes back to Brussels, and he's operating there. He also has ties to a couple of other key people, Abdel Salam and Abrini. Abrini is known by law enforcement because he goes to Syria and then he finds out that they want to interview him, so he goes to the police station. He says, okay, I'm here July. This is July before the November attack. And they put him under surveillance. I don't know what kind of surveillance this was because he's hanging out also with Abdel Salam, who they also know is a known militant. None, and and uh, Abud is close friends with this. What is this story? This is the classic don't connect the dots story, right? And it's very egregious. There are numerous examples like this, outrageous examples. Another sort of thing that these guys do, they decide that they want, and this isn't, talk about errors in operational security. They decide they want to pick up some weapons in France, so they steal an Audi. And when they steal it, they get pictures taken at the police station, which has Abrini and Abdel Salam that the police could have looked at, right? So there are these things prior that are it's happening the summer before, and nobody is um, doing anything about it. I would say if I was a family member who lost somebody in those attacks and I read this, this material, I would be appalled because you would realize that this stuff 
could be prevented. This is not rock. This is not. This is bad police work, and at least that's my feeling from my sense having read through a bunch of it. Okay, so access, right? I talked about local security, the two different pieces of that. Now I'm going to talk about that access thing that I keep talking about, and that means how do the militants get in from Syria and get back out? All of them have been in Syria in the Paris attacks. Or, or Turkey, some have not made it all the way to Syria. A couple have only been in Turkey. But they've been back, going back and forth. Abu's been back and forth multiple times. So what's going on? Part of it has to do with um, European borders. And I'm no expert on this, but I, my sense is, although we have an expert in here probably knows more than I do, um, about this, that even prior to 2015, and recall this is when the big refugee crisis hits um, because of the horrific war in Syria, all the Syrians trying to get out, um, and other groups as well, not just Syrians. Um, it's bad before that. You can see some of this material. It's like lots of laws, lots of poor coordination, not really functioning well at the border. Then you get the Syrian refugee crisis. And I have two different maps to show you. I'll start with this one. This is what a map of the Western Balkan route. This is the route that Abud and his crew and the different people and then many a, a series of other folks will take to get from the Middle East into Europe. And what they do is they often go through Greece. Greece is overwhelmed. This is, you know, Greece's economy ain't great. And the European Union doesn't do much to help them during this time. Macedonia, um, a lot of them are traveling through Macedonia. At one point, Macedonia um, is so overwhelmed that they just pass legislation that anybody can traverse their territory, anybody, as long as they're out in 72 hours. That is not border control of any kind, right? That is, come through Greece, Greece is overwhelmed, only 20% of the people are even being interviewed. And one understands, I mean, there, one context I want to give to this is that you're talking about hundreds and thousands of people, and I'm talking about a few 10, 20 militants in total. This is a tiny group of people, but they exploit the opportunity that this presents. And, this, and it's primarily that the state doesn't step up to manage this better, and they could have. They would have protected everybody, because it's not certainly good for refugees to have people hiding in, in amongst them, people who are really seeking help that this is happening within. Okay, so um, some come in through Hungary, um, some come in um, in different ways. They're all traveling through. And here's the second slide. See these arrows? These are arrows, big arrows that show big migratory routes where um, more than 100,000 people, these brown arrows down here, have come in. Um, you'll see the number of people in the different countries. Germany is accepting the most. Um, France also, France has been the most affected, I'd say, by the serious lots, um, but Germany has taken, Hungary's taken a lot per cap, if you count per capita too. Okay, so they're coming in. It's not just that refugees, re crisis is challenging systems. It is also problems with the way that the institutions are operating. Um, see here. So this gives you some examples. I'll just highlight a couple quick points here. 
So one thing is Abud figures this out, and he actually sends a scout to go map the route to figure out the best way to get people in and out. So he's got intelligence on that. Then they use it. One of the people, so this second line here, the Stade de France um, bombers, the stadium bombers, the people um, who did that, two of them are um, Iraqis. We still don't know their real names. But they um, came in, four, of, four people came in. Two of them acted skittish and got detained. And it's not clear. They weren't, they were, people think they were let go of the plot because they got detained. The other two go through. They're all using stolen passports. These are stolen passports on Interpol. Nobody checks. Abdel Salam at one point goes through. Everyone knows who he is. He's on a watch list in Belgium. They don't check. They just let them go. So there are systems that are not functioning here that are leading to this. And so the sort of upshot bringing this back to sort of analytically what I'm talking about is to understand Paris and Brussels, you have to understand the ability to get in and out because of what's going on in this, uh, with the state and the challenge of many people fleeing the civil war in um, Syria and the co opportunities for cover and concealment that provides. Okay, here's, this is not my chart, I'm borrowing this. This is from a West Point CTC Sentinel article, um, but it's really useful. This is uh, details of all of the people who go in and out, entry in Europe. There, a lot of them are coming through Hungary um, that are involved in this network um, and how many times they go through. There's more, they're only listing one, but Abud goes in and out several times. And so you can see how important this route and path is in and out. Okay. Um, I'm going to, I'll hold that. I'll go back to that if you're interested. Um, let me just sort of summarize. Let me go back to this. Um, sort of the upshot. The sort of what this shows is in a sort of fine grained way that it's not having a safe haven in and of itself in Syria that's the problem. There are other factors that are explaining what's going on into these plots. Okay. So I want to just briefly touch on, how am I doing on time? It's 5 okay, I'm, uh, I'm just going to, you read a bit about this in that paper if you did read it. I'm just going to say, um, I just, sorry, thinking on my feet. I want to talk just briefly about 9-11, and I could talk more about it later and how it fits the pattern if you want me to, but I just want to offer this as it's important to address a particular counterargument. So one of the chief counterarguments you could say to me is, yeah, you don't really need local security if your militants are so good that they are perfect terrorists. Right? Perfect terrorists, that's even Atta, people call him that, right? They are so good, they're so well trained, they're so well vetted that they don't make a single mistake, um, and they plan the, the plot to a T to minimize possible exposure. The count, and so this is the paradigmatic, the way the historical memory is of what 9-11 is. Ruthless hijackers, so good. That is not the story. These guys made tons of mistakes. There is no way, and I would bet my house on this, that those plotters, those guys could ever do what they did today. They... And, and the reason why this is important is that here you have the paradigmatic case of excellent training, excellent vetting, more than a year planning this thing, et cetera, et cetera. And these guys make serious errors. Um, 
their behavior at flight school, I mean, two of them in San Diego are living with an FBI informant. They, he's a drug, he's, he's, he's working on drugs, and these guys are very pious and not into drugs. But still, they don't even, you know, they're not even writing down, so a lot of this has to do with stuff law enforcement is doing or not doing. They're not even writing down and recording the appearance of these people to live in this FBI informant's house. There's outrageous behavior. Two flight instructors report them to the FBI in Arizona and in Minnesota. Some of you may know that story. Um, that's just the beginning of it. There's Atta, even the sort of quintessential best terrorist of them all, calls his dad right before 9-11. And that's a tracked phone call. I mean, that is not operational security. So there's just many things that they're doing. So the sort of upshot is 9-11 doesn't happen because of a territorial safe haven even, even in of, of itself. There are other factors that explain why that happens. And you have to know that to really understand the nature of this threat and the challenge that it's posing. Okay, um, I can go back to this. I'll just footnote it in case you're interested. There's this argument going around uh, about how you can remote control terrorists. You don't need to actually, um, you can use locals, you can just sit in your safe haven and remote control them. And I'll, I can tell you more why that's not true, why that's a problem in Q&A. Um, let me tell you about the larger work that I've been doing in analyzing plots. So I, um, first of all, I'm going through all, and this is, this is pretty difficult because there's not a definitive database. So it's checking a lot of different sources, and we've got a huge spreadsheet where we're just putting uh, my RA, I have her check different things, I look at different things, and just adding and trying to, and so right now, let's see, let me go back in there. Um, how many do I have? 163. Now, not all of these are complex plots. So about half of them are purely aspirational or they're not. They don't have anything that would make them actually look like a plot. Um, 2001 to 2016. And I've done those. Um, and I've done the 2018. I'm still working on 2017. I wanted to get it done before I came today, but it's not done because it just takes a long time. Um, and basically, going back, what I'm looking for is um, our... Are there border control problems? In particular, does that mean that there's an operative that's gone either directly from one of the havens into Europe that's part of the plot or somebody that's gone back and forth looking for that? Um, I'm only using groups that are controlling some territory, so that's I'm sort of controlling for that. And then are they in some kind of environment? And there are places in different parts of, the, of Europe where people talk about these sort of clusters of sort of uh, you know, this is tricky, but places where militants can hide. The quintessential sort of example is Londonistan. Lund I never actually said that out loud, Londonistan. Anyway, the, that's the pejorative nickname for the area in London where a lot of militants were able to congregate, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s. Anyway, so I'm looking to see, are there are these radical milieus, for lack of a better term, are there other indications going on that are suggestive of an environment that we can tie these militants and their cell to where they're operating, where they're meeting other people, and seeing if that's there. This is not easy to find. Some of them I'm not able to find information. Um, 
The Europeans don't have as good, we are, U.S. reports and shares information about terrorism much better than the Europeans do. Maybe you don't know that, but the FBI, every time it indicts somebody, puts out a press release. It doesn't happen in Europe, so some of this takes a long time. Anyway, so to go forward, um, so far, it really does seem to show up the case that especially um, that you're seeing at least one member has had some experience in Syria. Um, somebody who's traveled in and out, either that or there's a coordinator, somebody who's, who's a leader who's traveling in to help them. They're usually, not always, this is a little bit more variable, there is some sort of geographic space that they're associated with. Um, and there are usually, there are sometimes sort of errors that are found out later after they're arrested that could have, um, that look like intelligence failures. That's a little bit more uh, variable in terms of being systematic. Um, okay, so that's where I am. In the future, I will have this all done and you will be able to see this um, as I go to my next iteration of getting this done, but it's still in process. Okay, I just will um, almost finished here given the time, um, and offer this to you. So those, all of those other plots are mostly foiled, failed, mostly foiled. These are all the successful, sort of the big plots. When people are talking about devastating terrorist attacks, the kinds that have these psychological and political reverberations, these are those. And every single one has these attributes. Um, they have people who've had real training, they have people who um, are in some kind of environment where they have some local security. Um, and they even often actually have, I've added this on just to show you, they often have somebody involved from the actual hierarchical terrorist organization. Okay. So policy implications. Three slides here. First, this is pretty obvious. And the Europeans have been doing better on this. Again, I'm no expert on European intelligence and law enforcement, how all that works, but they've been working on some intelligence coordination. 2018 looks a lot better, and it's not for lack of trying by ISIS um, uh, in terms of some of the improvements. A lot of things are getting foiled now that weren't. Um, some general policy implications. I think that one of the things that comes out of this is thinking about how you can best create a an environment resilient against terrorism. And if you think about local security as the interaction between what the state is doing and what's happening in society, you don't want that state to be doing stuff that's going to make it harder for that society to want to cooperate with you. So the tactics you're using as law enforcement, you want to be doing stuff that is building um, trust and maintaining um, positive relationships across the community, and also not doing things to break up and create um, mistrust and um, pathologies within that community. Because it turns out that social networks can work both ways. They can, if, if they're sort of ambivalent toward militancy, they can provide places for militants to hide the local security. But if they're resilient against it, they are very, very valuable means for exposing militancy. But that requires that they be functional and not have people mistrusting each other. Is that making sense? Hopefully it's making sense. Not I can explain it more later. Okay, last slide. Uh, so this is the big one, right? You, you know, you don't need to be going out and eliminating 
terrorist safe havens. And that has been the justification for so much military activity since 2001 that the U.S. has participated in. You don't need to do it. There are other things you can do. You can, prov you can think about the access problem. You can think about the local security problem and think about improvements and things you can do. That's the essence of what uh, Barry Posen wrote in an article about a containment approach to dealing with terrorism. And so basically, uh, my hope is that to contribute to that conversation and to debunk and provide some challenge to the people who every time they want to justify and rationalize some military intervention, pull out the safe haven thing from their pocket and say, but the safe haven, we got to prevent the safe haven. And sort of at least raise questions and challenges to that. And that's sort of the public policy piece of this. Thank you. I will welcome your questions. And how do I do that? Do I, I will, ask them or I will do take they take them? The or? list and okay. call on people in turn. But before we do that, mm -hmm. let's have a big round of applause for oh, your talk. Thank you. And if the people asking questions could do so clearly and sufficiently loudly, it's a big room, so please clearly and loudly would be very helpful. First up is Beth. Hi, I'm sorry. Thank you for speaking to us today. Uh, it's a very interesting topic. So you mentioned at the beginning that DC uh, people in DC are worried about um, these conflicts, of, uh, these terrorist attacks, and argue that this is the motivation to go to eliminate these safe havens. Um, do you believe that? They're worried about these complex attacks that you talk about, or more so the lone wolf that you don't quite examine here? Um, they're worried about both. Um, they People don't talk about the concern about another 9-11, mostly because there hasn't been a single thing like that since 9-11. Um, but you know, they want to prevent both of them. And the illusion that they make when they're talking about getting rid of territory is usually to some kind of plot with some sophistication. Maybe not a 9-11 level, but something that's more than a guy with a car running people over. Um, so it is, it is, they don't talk about getting rid of lone wolf terrorism, that you need to get rid of safe havens to get rid of that as much. It's much more about plots with some sophistication. Francis? Thank you for the presentation, I very much. So I noticed the difference between your presentation and the paper you sent out before yes. is how you framed your question. So in your paper, you framed it as a empirical puzzle that there's very few terrorist attacks in the US after 9-11. And why is that? To explain that. And this new framing is engaging in this debate about safe haven. I, I definitely think it's more interesting. But I do feel there's a little disconnect between your answer and your question. Um, mm -hmm. In that you're not, so your argument is that there are these, these many other things that you can do instead of eliminating the safe haven. But you're not, the answer part of the, of your, so, so the part that you are not answering is the cost of eliminating safe haven. Uh, so in other words, the people who support eliminating safe haven can say that this and this and this are all necessary but not yes. sufficient a good conditions. Point. Mm -hmm. And we want to do all of them to make so, sure that nothing happens. Right. So there's some risk acceptance you have. I mean, okay, in an ideal world, we would do everything if we could afford it and it was possible. It's probably not 
doable or possible for the U.S. to commit military resources forever in an effort to permanently eliminate the possibility that a militant organization holds some territory in the Middle East. Having said that, people will vary as to how much risk they're willing to accept along that. And so some moderate investment many people would support would be things like some of the counterterrorism uh, things that we are doing now, which include um, special operations forces, things like that. Some people would say that's warranted in order to limit the amount of territory they have, keep a handle on it. Um, but that is different than this idea of eliminating and getting rid of terrorist haven havens, the idea that just their very existence is inherently challenging to us. At least it opens up a debate about how much investment we should be making toward those military policies, right? At least it says, well, it's costly. How much? You know, now we know what the, some of the risks are. Now we have a sense of whether it's worth it and what are the downsides to this. So I'm not saying that somebody couldn't say we shouldn't do something about that. I'm saying that isn't the solution. There are other solutions, and we should think about how much risk we're going to accept and have a debate about that. Thank you for your talk. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about where the funding of a complex thought fits into this argument, particularly um, in today's regulatory environment where yeah, that's a really nice point. And that gets into that idea of if you think of money, movements of money, changing money, transferring money as part of security, you need security for that. If you've changed rules and made that more difficult, you've reduced the amount of security around that. So analytically, that's how I think about that. Empirically, I don't know much about, I mean, I know generally that it's happened, but not really exactly what it is. But I think it, it fits in with the general way I would think about it. Uh, so my question is a little bit similar to the first point. Um, because I, it's because we haven't really had a substantial complex plot that has succeeded in the United States since 9-11 and since we've cracked down on safe havens, uh, do you think it would be, politically it could be very difficult for someone to commit to this plan having with the evidence so far that if we do this, then so far nothing has happened, but if something were to happen after we did pull back from the safe haven, then politically they're at. Yeah, it doesn't matter why, right? The argument will be, well, so-and-so president withdrew from the Middle East, and look, now this happened, and the causality of that will just get washed away in the political firestorm. So yeah, I think it's a political problem. I do not think that the evidence is not that all of a sudden if ISIS has a safe haven that they're going to be able to engage in a complex attack because they would like to have done that, right? Since 2013, they've been working, before they even had territory, they've been working toward this. In Europe, in the US, you saw, they, that was not by accident the stuff that happened in Europe. So it didn't happen then, and that's partly because these other elements are in place. And, um, but if it were to happen, and a president, um, you know, 
gives, you know, gives in and decides he's not going to, he or she is not going to spend their entire life fighting wars to eliminate safe havens in the Middle East, the political blowback could be significant, and that's a problem. That narrative needs to change for us to be able to get beyond this. In, that's my opinion, anyway. Monica? Thank you. Um, my question is how, if at all, your argument and your research relates to this current topic of the return of former militants to countries oh, where they have citizenship, like yeah. um, ISIS fighters coming back to the U.S. Excellent. Would you say that it means that there's greater risk if they stay in the safe haven or yeah. if they return to countries and can act as one of those networks? Because many people do argue yeah. that former militants have said, like, oh, they're great resources for countries to, to use to talk yeah. against um, radicalization, but is it a bigger risk to allow them to return? So. In the, in the basic sense, these are people who've had experience and uh, potentially some training, right? So in principle, they have that piece. So what do you do about it? You deal with the other pieces, right? These are people that everybody's going to know who they are. They're people who, and that's sort of an access thing, right? They're not just coming in. They're not infiltrating. They're known quantities. And then you do regular law enforcement things that you do when you have people who potentially, who, the ones that you really think could become violent. You do that. That's what law enforcement does with the people now. Now, some of that is um, not always necessary that's being done, but that, those are the kinds of solutions that you have. I don't think it's in principle. If you have open borders or you not have control over you know, people coming in and these people can just go through like they did in 2015, it's a problem. If not, I don't see why you just don't I don't understand the nature of what the actual problem they're getting at. Is that making sense? That's great. Great, thank you. Um, Rose. Yeah, um, so I have a question about the, the U.S. case. Yeah. And it wasn't clear to me, it wasn't totally clear to me what the argument was in terms of why we haven't had a spectacular attack in the United States, right? Yeah. Is it that these people are deterred because they think it's not going to work, so they're not trying? Are they trying and failing? Are they um, not interested and their focus is elsewhere, so they're not even trying? Um, is it because we went and beat up their safe havens in Afghanistan and other places? Mm -hmm. They just wasn't totally yeah, trying to figure out why I think that they're that Yeah, I mean, it's something that doesn't happen, so it's, you know, there's difficulty there, but I'm just not sure what the argument yeah. was. So um, I would say this. I think that there's evidence that maybe not with al-Qaeda, because some people say there's been some policy shifts, but ISIS. Since 2014, ISIS has wanted to engage in external operations. They talk about the US. So, and there's the fact that they have this whole external operations apparatus with people in a hierarchy and they've been doing it in Europe and France in particular who they really have in their you know target for suggests to me that it's not from lack of interest in doing it if it was possible now maybe deterrence that's happening and that's a hard thing to sort of empirically measure but in principle it's hard for me to see that if they thought it was possible or they could do it, they wouldn't do it, given their emphasis on external operations in Europe. That it's not like Al Qaeda, which is decided for other reasons that maybe they want to hold off and concentrate on building local environments. So that's the best answer I could 
think of why. Um, and yeah. Thank you, gentlemen in the room. Thanks very much for really interesting remarks. And um, really refreshing to hear someone use the term containment um, in this current environment. I didn't invent uh, that term, unfortunately. No, no, it's been around a long time, actually. Um, but it's nice to see it sort of returning to the, to the narrative. Um, and I also appreciate your comment about the costs of, of these wars. I mean, we've, we've heard so modest estimates that Afghanistan and Iraq alone have cost us maybe upwards of $4 trillion. Um, and, can, and we don't know what. Serious cost us, or even sort of defense, you know, sort of what's spent on Iran. So, you add all that up, we've lost, you know, a generation's worth of value in this country. And so, the question is, can we sustain that into the future? So, I think this discussion about containment that you represent is, is more than timely. But just maybe to be a little bit of a devil's advocate on that, um, when we used to use that, that terminology earlier, it was about, it was in the Cold War, when we were talking yeah. about states, not non-state actors. Yeah. That's the first sort of, sort of issue that I think is kind of interesting to think about as we, as we use the language. Yeah. And, um, and the second is, um, you know, when, when the, these conflicts started with 9-11, it was about Al-Qaeda, and now it's about ISIS. And ISIS has a different sort of ideology than Al-Qaeda. In other words, they have this notion of establishing a caliphate which is about space and then sustaining a permanent state of warfare. In other words, the, the jihad is kind of, you know, you have defensive and offensive jihad as part of the logic of their very existence and their control of space, um, which is somewhat different than, than Al-Qaeda, which had kind of a, you know, was a global network, but had kind of a long-term millennial view of, of realizing the caliphate. Um, and I kind of wonder whether, to some degree, that changes the way we have to think about it. And then the other issue is finally, you know, if I were kind of in the opposition to your containment argument, I say, well, what about loose nukes? Um, that's also kind of used as a as a trump card on, uh, you know, when one tries to kind of argue for different approaches to dealing with how would we withdraw from where we are militarily and how would we contain this issue, um, you know, in, a, in this post 9/11 world where we're so caught up in a particular narrative about the only solution is. What do you mean by loose nukes? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, well just I, like, mean, I mean, to some mean, degree, this whole notion of, that? you know, that there are, there's the potential of, you know, a small group like this having access oh. to nuclear weapons and, and using them, you know, you only need two people in a suitcase and in a New York subway, you know, I mean, that, that, that sort of, that imagery, oh, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll take the easy, easiest part of your question there, which is the last one. I think if you look empirically at how difficult it's been for any of these terrorists, even the ones that have trained or for like a couple years to even do some of this stuff or fought, to do even stuff like build a TATP bomb, the idea that they're going to acquire and then be able to use some kind of nuclear weapon seems... You know, I, I'm not seeing how that could happen. Now, maybe they could steal it. Maybe there's some, you know, criminal operation that they sort of coalesce with, and there's some way that they do that. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but nobody's going to make, they can barely make, a lot of these guys can't even make pipe bombs. Fortunately, again, that's good. So it's hard for me to get traction on that argument. Um, the containment and what does it mean, you're right that that needs to be better specified. I like the allusion to it, and I'm not the first to even use it in regard to ISIS. I didn't invent that. Um, I think what it means here is some, you know, some limited 
um, efforts to ensure to sort of keep the safe havens that exist porous, engage in disruption, whether that's drones or whatever, some sort of counterterrorism activity, and the kinds of things I'm talking about, which is to improve your intelligence apparatus so that it connects its dots, to think about using productive and effective counterterrorism or intelligence methods, tactics by the FBI so they don't alienate and create mistrust within communities so that they may remain resilient against terrorism. These sorts of things are pieces of that, but you're right that the terminology may be kind of jarring and needs to be thought through. As far as the different um, ideologies, I'm not sure. I mean, I think if you're a group, and this gets to Rose's point, that's decided it doesn't want to attack, ex do external operations, you know, given up on the far enemy strategy, so to speak, then that's an, a solution in and of itself. But that's also probably not a non-instrumental decision, right? That may be partly an artifact of absorbing the sort of deterrence of what's going to happen if we try this and, you know, that probably could be some argument for remaining somewhat aggressive if you do see any signs of any attempts for complex attacks because you want to retain that deterrence. And that, I think, is a, a little bit of a squishier piece of the argument. I don't know if that's making sense. But anyway, thank you for the question. Thank you, Mike. Uh, great. Uh, Risa, congratulations. Uh, ripped from the headlines uh, topic. Um, I have two questions, one about the uh, ripped from the headlines piece of it, um, but the other one is uh, about how you deal with the Afghanistan case. And the, the argument I could see a critic making is Afghanistan was the paradigmatic safe haven um, case. Um, without the uh, al-Qaeda safe haven there, as this argument would go, you wouldn't have had 9-11. And I, I get a sense from the paper and your talk that you're basically saying, well, there was a lot of stuff that the uh, Atta and crew got lucky with in the United States that may not happen again. But I, I, I'm wondering whether uh, you go right to uh, Afghanistan itself in terms of uh, dealing with the safe haven <laughs> argument and how you would do that. The, the second question, this is the rip from the headlines piece, as you alluded to, the big argument against uh, what Obama did in Iraq and what uh, Trump may do in Syria and Afghanistan is, as you say, mm -hmm. that they may turn into the uh, safe havens uh, again. So the question would be, do you have, does your argument have any implications for what we ought to be doing in terms of, for example, the negotiations with the Taliban? Um, or, you know, is it just that uh, that's not part of our decision about pulling out and we would sort of mow the grass if we had to using drones or special operations? Um. <coughs> Going to the second one. I think that, I mean, part of what I understand is going on with the Taliban is this offer they've put on the table that they won't allow anybody to attack the United States if we get out. Um, 
Whether that's credible or not, I don't know. I'm not expert to be able to, I don't understand the Taliban well enough to understand the politics of what's going on with that and who's offering and what, you know, all of that. Um, but I would say that if we want to stay in Afghanistan, there may be reasons, but I don't think it's because of a safe haven. And that's the part of the argument I'm challenging. Maybe it's Pakistan, maybe, you know, sunk costs. I don't know. There are arguments out there. Maybe we care about all the terrorism that's afflicting our neighbors because there is plenty of access and local security that our neighbors can't really prevent, right? And that they're suffering in the states in the Middle East. So maybe those are arguments. I don't, and I think that there are decisions that we can make about how much a dialogue and a debate about what is a worthwhile, reasonable investment to try to keep a lid on how much territory is controlled to minimize the, the possibility that they could train their way out of the need for local security, right? And maybe you want to do that. But there needs to be a debate. We don't want to just reflexively say a safe haven, oh yes, we must go sit there forever and, and we can eliminate it and it will never come back. First of all, it'll just go to a different continent, which is what's basically happened. Jason? I'll Great. talk to uh, your other question. Thanks for your talk. Uh, I really appreciate that you're drawing our attention to sort of a set of necessary conditions. Of yeah, safe that's a good way to frame this. I've thought of doing that explicitly. Yeah, yeah and I, then I also appreciate that you're sort of drawing attention to how we make the cost-benefit calculation. So my question is sort of an assumption that seems to be built into the way you were thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And it's drawn from your cases as well, which is if we kick the funds downstream to try to deal with intel and access, that makes you and I safer. It makes people in London safer, Paris mm -hmm. safer. Mm -hmm. But terrorists aren't static. They might redirect their efforts. Yes. And so, so what's the implication to your argument then for attacks in Nairobi or Mumbai that yeah. The safe haven advocate might say, well, if we just eliminate the source, we get more for our, more bang for right. our buck. And so how does that play into how yeah. you're thinking about this in other cases? I mean, we already saw some of that happen with Europe, right? ISIS can't get the U.S. Where do they go, right? They go to Europe where they could. And yeah, it's awful. And it's a serious issue. You And that may go into these calculations of cost benefits of like, you want to help your neighbors harden their, their borders, or um, if it's possible, invest in helping them improve intelligence coordination. Because a lot of the things I think relative to military operations are cheap. And a lot of them is fixing stuff that's not working. So at least that's what I came out from this story. These are not things that are working fine. These are things that bureaucracies that are not working. And fixing that may be cheaper and easier in helping our neighbors so that all these things are not re redirected to our allies might be a solution. But you're right. I mean, these groups are going to want to attack somewhere, probably, or do bad, other bad stuff. They're not good actors. Is that sort of getting at the point that you're trying to make? Or you're looking puzzled, so push me more farther. From increasing our intelligence that would go to other countries. But uh, for me, the takeaway is the policy implication is Wait, that say that last bit again. I didn't hear that. So, what I'm saying is the policy implication is by making us safer, we're making other countries less yep. safe, right? Got it. So are there any spillover effects or residual effects from, let's say, increasing our intelligence oh, that we I would see. then apply to our allies? Yeah, so, so right. Absolutely. I get it. Okay, I see what you're saying now. 
Um, yeah, absolutely, because some of the stuff that's been foiled in Europe has come from the U.S. I mean, like literally, um, let's see. I'll, I'll tell you an, a, a, a good story. I know way too many of these stories. So I'll tell you this one. So there's a guy in late 2016, he's come in, he's infiltrated, he's been in Syria, he's been trained and recruited there, and he comes in via the Balkan, Balkans route, and he's in Germany, and he's communicating with somebody in Syria via telegram. He's gone, um, he's built a TAT bomb, right? He's had training, so this is not surprising to me that if anybody's gonna be able to do it, it would be able to him. He's exposed because U.S. intelligence monitors that conversation on Telegram and tells the Germans. I'll just add the rest of the story because it is a good part of the story. Um, he, they raid his, this is the day before, they've been monitoring for a while, but they get the idea that he's actually going to do something. So the police go in and raid his apartment building, um, and he's living in a, in a building with a bunch of refugees, and, and um, he escapes. He's on the loose for two days. And they put pictures of him all over the place. He goes into a train station in Leipzig. And he goes up to another Syrian refugee. And he says, you know, can you, can you hide me? And the guy says, OK, I'll take you home. He takes him home. He calls two friends. They tie him up and call the police. And you know, that's one of those stories of like, it, and you know, sort of to, to bridge off that, you really want to use law enforcement tactics that maintain the resilience of social networks, especially when they're hostile to militancy, because that means they have information and control. I mean, that example, they didn't know each other. So, but the larger point is that's a really effective tool, and that's how society itself is a crucial variable in thinking about how these things work. It's not a new observation, but it's one that we don't bring into the debate about ISIS and Al-Qaeda in a, in a complete way, always. I, I guess I, I've got that, some just clarification for you sure. there, see if you could clarify. I, I'm more of looking at your questionable justification for military operations overseas. And where, what are you deeming as a questionable justification or what questionable military operation overseas when you're saying a safe haven is not the reason. Because, um, I mean, I, I'll give you Iraq. Iraq was absolutely a mess. It was conventionalized completely. But if, and then you look at Afghanistan basically from 2008 until about 2012, pretty conventionalized. But all the other times like that, they've been a soft element. Uh, the drones definitely picked up between 2007 and further. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure what questionable military operations have existed or have happened Besides that, now military is expensive and soft. You know, one of the soft I thought we were having a whole counter. Okay, I thought we had a CT mission and a and a counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. That's how I've always understood it. Is that not how you understand it's, it's, it? It's it's very intertwined. Yes, you had the CT mission over in the eastern part, and we deemed the ISIS and everyone in the eastern mm -hmm. part of the country that that's open grounds. It's a free fire zone. The rest of the country is a counterinsurgency where they go through actions like that. Mm -hmm. But as far as what military forces are being used, I think the U.S. doesn't understand what our actual commitment is militarily on the ground. Who's actually doing things? Mm -hmm. I mean, 80% of the operations done in the country of Afghanistan is done by soft forces. Conventional guys, the 1st Infantry Division is not controlled down the streets. They haven't done that in several, several years. So I'm just wondering, 
a lot of what you're saying is true definitely for Iraq. We, we, that was questionable military operations and we used the wrong answer for that. It was not a safe haven. But Afghanistan, we still use that. One of the big justifications for Afghanistan is there's 90 named uh, you know, counter or, or uh, terrorist organizations in the world. 20 of them are located right there in that corner of the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's the only, it's the most concentrated element of named targeted terrorist organizations in the world. So we want to maintain that footprint. Now, as a person who was in Afghanistan in 2001, I'm going to tell you, I'm tired and ready to come home from that place. However, I will say stuff like our operations, Gallant Phoenix, and those things, which is our intelligence sharing that we do from everyone coming out of safe havens with the rest of the world, it's, it's paid a lot of dividends. So it's really hard to say we have questionable military operations when that's the biggest payout from those operations is our intel sharing. So my understanding, I think when I mean questionable, I mean debatable, not questionable. I mean in the sense of, you know, what are our goals there and how much investment? And as you're characterizing it, what you're saying is that most of what's been going on, say, since 2014 maybe, has been counterterrorism missions. That's not exactly how I understood it. I thought we were also doing advice assist to help um, prevent, you know, enable the Afghan government to prevent the Taliban from taking over and so had a larger sort of state building agenda there. And so that the way that you're explaining it to me sounds more in the parameters of this debate that I, this young woman mentioned early, which is how much is the right amount for what effort to degrade, how much territory can we live with given what the risk is without reflexively thinking that they should have no territory or were inherently subject to a, a catastrophic attack. And, and, and I think one of the things that we have a problem with, especially with everyone who understands things, is there's a difference between uh, counterinsurgency and foreign internal defense. And I would constitute what we do in most places in Africa and Asia is foreign internal defense. And that is such as we're doing Afghanistan of China. That's to quite, I mean, that's fascinating to me. I really have not heard it described that way. Because you're yeah. propping up the government itself to be able to defend itself versus whatever threat. And it's done at a low cost. However, low cost to them, but the U.S. is paying a hell of a lot of money in all these places to do these things. And that's really where we're seeing most of that military operation overseas is in the investment for foreign internal defensive countries. So what if we tell Americans, th there may be good reasons to do this. Again, it's a different policy objective. But to tell Americans that everything we're doing in the Middle East is because it's necessary to prevent them from succumbing to another 9-11 is wrong. It's not true. We're not, we have other things that explain why 9-11 happened and other things we can do about it. And I think it's specious and politically not sustainable to do that. So I'm not saying, I think maybe one of the things I'm taking away is that I need to talk about my policy implications differently, which is to be opening up a debate and talking about risk acceptance and things rather than coming to a conclusion with that. But that's what I'm trying to do, is sort of debunk this reflexive idea that holding territory is going to result in terror. And, and there's polling that shows many Americans believe this. And it has political consequences. It has p reverberations on other policies and things. And so we need to challenge that. So you may not agree with me, but that's the effort that I'm trying to spark that conversation. But that's useful. I, I hadn't, 
I really did not, haven't heard someone characterize what we're doing in Afghanistan in that way, and it's interesting that you, since you do this and you've done it, think about it that way. You just got home in June from another year there. I can imagine it must be. Well, thanks for the perspective. Thanks for your service. Interesting project. I'll just toss out a question and talk about it. Maybe if there are something you don't have to answer this now, unless you really want to. And then a question I would like you to answer. Sure. When to answer and one to just pick at me with? Okay, that's you. Do you know him? That's his modus operandi. The first is the one I think you should answer is necessarily is about. Uh, what it is that you're really advising? So you're saying, yeah, I don't you know, know exactly. I, you know, I agree with, um, you know, uh, don't do stupid endless wars overseas. Yeah, right? I figured that. Um, yeah. So, but your alternative or your reason that we can get away with not doing that makes me very uncomfortable. So okay. say, it seems uncomfortable that you say. I think I thought I I anticipated this. Yeah. So, yeah. so like if we have a better police state at home. I know that's you what you were saying. Leave. That is why I was, yeah. did not say that. Yeah. Did I say that, Mike? No. Yeah. <laughs> I said intelligence coordination, bureaucracies working like they're supposed to. That's not working like they're supposed to. Okay. That's the effect of the police state. Okay. Um, so uh, you know, it's like the Department of Pre-Crime. If we arrest people for ordering cast uh, then um, you know they didn't arrest him until he made it, until yeah, he actually but, 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 look. I'm not. Like, I'm just. This is all kinds of you know. It's the surveillance. State these are values and political differences that we can have about investing. Yes. This is why I try it to is true that it's impossible answers. to be a terrorist in the surveillance state age, which I think is really the alternative explanation to my entire argument, which is nobody can do anything anymore ever, and it's not good. Because, yeah, so I am sure. sympathetic with a piece of your. Yeah. Idea. Okay, but sorry, so, that's going so in. I just want to plant this at least eight Now, the, the question <laughs> I is. I knew he was going to ask that. Yeah. yeah. So, strike, the striking thing about your talk, your talk is. Um, I think it's really interesting. It's about sort of all these steps of things that have to go right for yeah. terrorism. We could disrupt this step. We don't have to do that yeah. step, right? Which is um, uh, right on. Um, but the surprising thing to me is that you didn't say much. You focused on the two steps you want to disrupt: the access yeah. and the local security. And the local security, and you said remarkably little about what constitutes a safe haven, what yeah. might happen in a safe haven. Sure. You just sort of refer generally a number of times to, oh, a lot of these people have been to Syria. And, yeah. Um, I mean, Syria is actually a crap safe haven for the most part because there's a horrible... No, they have there. a whole operation in, uh, in northern Aleppo that's actually like buildings and places that they all go yeah. to. I mean, there's, there's infrastructure there. It, it's... Um, Okay. Yes, you're right. I did. I was very hand waving into what in the long in the paper that you didn't read. There is a lot more detail about. You didn't. I did not send because it's. I'm sorry. I misspoke. The paper that is being revised in the midst that the the. The one I chose not to send because right. I figured it would open up more cans of worms. There is a section where I define and I do I'm somewhat more systematic than my hand waving was today. You want to enlighten us in five minutes? Uh, uh, about what it is? 
Yeah. Ask for maybe a platform to discuss that. If you go back to the slide that has the three columns of yeses and define the right hand column. That'd be interesting. Which one? Wait, which one is back? Is it back? Yes, is this one. So okay. When I was reading it, yeah. the um, right column sounds a lot like safe haven, and it sounds like your conclusion doesn't follow okay. from this table. Okay. So this, uh, this is a, I think this follows on your question. Please right. define safe haven. So I think what, okay, so what I meant here, just to explain it, I see it as a little vague, um, is did some of the people go to a place where there's freedom of movement, a suspension um, of a suspension or just an absence of a counterterrorism effort, such that there's infrastructure that they can open, operate somewhat openly, congregate without somebody coming to arrest them. It's a, what, it, what I think of as a territorial safe haven is you're sort of suspending the need to remain clandestine. And that allows you opportunities to build um, capacity to build infrastructure, to create um, buildings, houses, where you can bring people freely, where you can congregate and um, give them short courses in terrorism. I mean, literally, you know, sort of the, quin the sort of classic example is some of the stuff that KSM does, which is, you know, Atta goes to, he goes through Karachi, he goes into Kandahar, and he's there for three to four months, and they teach him a lot of different things. They practice things. They can have engineers and instruct them how to build TAT bombs and how and they practice doing that. That sort of stuff is what I'm envisioning happens when you have when you control territory because it allows you to do things without having police knocking at your door or the state coming to find you. And that's the, that that's what I'm arguing is now what I mean here is that some of the people that were involved in the plot in Europe and all these plots. Had, had gone and spent time in an area where a militant group controlled territory and had some infrastructure for training and a headquarters and a base. And also, interestingly, in many cases, there was a manager or a mentor in that territory haven that that, that trained person would remain contact with or that person would come into Europe or not. So it, it, that is what I'm trying to get at, more or less. You don't have to believe that, but that is what I'm I would mean, okay. make that distinction. Elaborate on what that yes. column means. So Fair this enough. one had better be good. Because uh, you're the last one. Okay. And you've already asked a question. Um, so you, you referenced several times, oh yeah, like these were very avoidable if we just had, you know, different security measures, improved security measures, like mm -hmm. easily could have, you know, prevented these. But I feel like that is... You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, I'm sure. What do you pay intelligence agencies to do? Well, right, but I'm sure, like <laughs> that's their job. The next attack, they're supposed to anticipate us stuff. Right. So, but the the next attack. Sorry, you you're opening yourself up, and you look like you could take it. So I'm going to argue back with you. Okay. <laughs> so the next attack, we're going to look back and say, oh, that we made another obvious error. So in the meantime. Okay. Yeah. So there are ways that yes, you're getting at how do you measure what constitutes an error or not, and not fair enough. The stuff that happens in 9/11 is that what you're talking about? I just think that it's um, it's, a, it's an easy way to like close off to dismiss everything as oh it was a very 
uh, it was a it was just, it was an error, and so okay. we can easily prevent it from ever happening again. Uh, well, so. these are not my conclusions. Have you read the 9/11 Commission report? You should. Parts of it, yeah. Okay. We sure, should read but it again. That's what led to the, the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security was that we found out we had this failure in our intel apparatuses that didn't share information. We we created a whole new office, the you know off, office of ODNI, Director of Net. National. Net sorry, <laughs> sometimes acronyms. So, you know, we changed now. People argue whether that was those were good solutions to the problem, but the 9-11 Commission report laid out very clear things that went wrong. Do you know, you should look into the Malaysia meeting. Do you know what that is? Okay, I'm gonna tell you. And then you're gonna say, oh, that really does sound like an error. So some of the people involved in 9-11 hijackers were in a meeting that the CIA knew about and had pictures of some of the participants and had linked to another plot where a warship had been blown up in Yemen and had this information for months and didn't tell the FBI and didn't tell the State Department and these people came in and out of the US. This is an egregious, this is not take analytical sophistication to see that this is a siloing, not sharing information. And that is not my conclusion. That is the 9-11 solution. So do you think every, any terrorist attack, complex terrorist attack that would happen would involve an error? Not necessarily. That is a good, I, I like that question. Trouble is, surprise attacks routinely have the same failure mode, and so we never learn. That's another good point, but I'm on this point. So, um, what, so what is, okay, no, not every single one. It is possible that you can do everything right and every once in a while you're gonna get unlucky. But in more, in many cases, what I would expect is that, especially that empirically it is what happens. These things, they all make mistakes, and there are things that law enforcement often, in, in retrospect, sometimes really egregious things that could have been done to address that. So we'll end with that note of optimism. Okay. <laughs> it's a good question. I like the way you framed the second question. I will think about that one. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash n-d-i-s-c forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag n-d underscore i-s-c. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.